Now we have begun to open uh, the reference in the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation to the four horsemen of the Apocalypse. And as I've said, all of these signs are meant to tell us where we are in the advancement of human history which is destined to accommodate the purposes of God, to see it through to its ripening fullness and also to accommodate the advance of the opposition to the Kingdom of God uh, in all of its grotesque perversion. Now, right after uh, the, the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals and the four living creatures announced, come and see, we're introduced to the rider on the white horse who is different from the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we're trying to unpack here, or we're attempting to unpack, who or what is the rider on the white horse. We had talked about how he sat, or he who sat on it had a bow. I had um, set that aside for a moment because I wanted to come back to it. And I focused on the fact that he was given a crown and he went out conquering and to conquer. <clears throat> I was explaining the difference between the crown he was given and uh, the crown that is typically associated with royalty and hereditary monarchy. Again, uh, the diadem is the crown of hereditary monarchy which means an orderly accession to power, an hereditary transfer of, the, of power and authority of a kingdom from one ruler to another ruler and some sense of the orderly designation of that. This one, however, was given not a diadem but a stefanu or a, a laurel or a wreath and I, I spoke about how the victor laudorum in the Greek games uh, was the overcoming, uh, the most powerful of the, of the athletes, the one who was consistently a winner. So for example, Hercules would have been said to be one of the type of those who were the victor of praise, laudorum is praise, the celebrated athlete, analogous to uh, the decathlon in, mod in the modern Olympics. He was given a crown and it, it indicates that he did not obviously have an hereditary right to possess it, but he was given one on the basis of his personal accomplishments, what he could do. And with that, with that crown, he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, you will note that Jesus was not given all authority in heaven and on earth 
nor was Jesus given all the nations as his inheritance because of his ability to subdue by the force of his own personhood. Jesus was given the authority by God. He was given the diadem, the power to rule heaven and earth because of his obedient life. And immediately we have the juxtaposition between the Lamb who had overcome and the rider on the white horse who goes out conquering and to conquer. Now, in the word conquering, it's the word nikao and we get the word Nike, N-I-K-E, like the swoosh, Nike, from that. And it was of course the report that uh, the Greek athlete, uh, the Athenian athlete brought back from the plains of Marathon uh, where uh, uh, the, the, the Athenians went out to engage the Persian hordes. And the, the, the Pheidippides, the athlete, collapsed as he brought the word of the victory of the Athenians on the plains of Marathon and he uttered one word, Niki, we have overcome, we've conquered. So this is an ordinary, or, or this is more like it's understood ordinarily. It's not the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah who overcame as we are to overcome by the submission of our lives to the purposes of God. He's not the devouring lion, Jesus is not. He's greater and he can, he can destroy the devouring lion, but the manner of the overcoming of the lion of the tribe of Judah, and I'm referencing uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5 just before this in which it is said, for the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed, has overcome, and he's worthy to take the scrolls and to open the seals. His overcoming is by his obedient life, in the same way we overcome, which is by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and that we choose not to save our own lives. We submit, and it's the power of God, the histemi of God that rises up within us when we are in a position of submission that overcomes. It is what is called, uh, uh, th this is the foundation of faith, this is our epistemology. But this is not that, so this is not of the Kingdom of God in the nature of its, of its conquering. It overcomes by the terror of its might, by its ability to subdue and to conquer. In this sense, in this sense, this is a conqueror whose nature and character is like the great beast of Daniel, the seventh chapter, concerning which beast it is said that he crushed and devoured his victims and he oppressed and tread down 
the whole earth. This is this kind of conquering. Now, part of the manner of his conquering is he has a bow, a bow. Compare this to the sword that comes out of the mouth of the rider on the white horse. The bow is associated with a man in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, the 10th chapter, called Nimrod. Nimrod. And Nimrod is described in chapter 10 of the book of Revelation as a great, excuse me, chapter 10 of the book of Genesis, he's described as a great hunter a great hunter, as one who hunted with a bow. And, and he is the founder of the city known as Babel, where the rebellion against God in the ancient times, following the flood, was again reformulated on the earth. He hunts men as prey, this conqueror, like Nimrod of the Old Testament. So the bow connects this man, this is not a man, he's a rider on a horse. Right? The bow, his method of conquering, connects him back to Nimrod who opposes God and subjugates man by his own strength. Because you see, the kingdom of darkness has had multiple signs, multiple types along the path of human history. Those types would fold into each other and like a snowball going down the hill, down the mountain, it would gather mass as it, as it as it continued through history. So the earliest indication of this wicked kingdom that would suppress the whole earth, this fourth beast of Daniel 7, one of the earliest indications of that kingdom was Babel, because it was in the kingdom of Babel that God came down to see their works and said, there's nothing that they can't do in the manner in which they have, they have um, uh, contrived to burn bricks and to build a tower on the plains of Shinar and to conceive of how to go forward in the post-Diluvian period after the flood in the same manner and with the same spirit with which they oppose God prior to the flood. So Nimrod and Babel are pictures of how this, this opposition to God that has been in the earth since creation, since the enemy came in, was reconfigured and how it was again re-engaged. And the character of Nimrod was he was a suppressor or subduer of people. 
He brought them together in opposition to God and and, and he was known for being the hunter with the bow. Uh, And in, in connection with that therefore, we see that this spirit, this person on, on the right, on the white, the white horse, who goes forth, why does he have a bow again? What is his mission? Conquering and to conquer. This bow is not decorative. This is a war bow. Now, I have jumped ahead and I've said this is a spirit. So what I want to do before I unpack any more of the four horsemen of the Apocalypse is to show you that all four, indeed there are five, who are spirits, they're all spirits. To do that, I want to go, I want to look at verse 7 of Revelation 6 because in the identifying of horsemen, it is unmistakable that they are demonic spirits, powerful demonic spirits, in which case they're the prime agencies for the rolling out of the kingdom of darkness, this great beast in that form as it's coming forth even now upon the earth. Verse 7 says, when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, we were at the first seal, now when He opens the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and hell followed after him, and power was given to them, death and hell, to kill, power was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by beasts of the earth. Now, I'm not unpacking the fourth creature yet or the fourth horseman yet. All I came here to show you, and I'm going to observe that and stay with it because I have two others in between that I need to go back and, and, and unpack. I came here only to show you this that the riders, the rider on the fourth horse was called what? Death and hell followed after him. Who or what are death and hell? Well, we know about them in Scripture. In Revelation, the 20th chapter, at the conclusion of the great white throne judgment, it is said, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire which is the second death. There's a pattern you see, and two may not necessarily create a pattern, but I'll show you a third example. Death and hell work together, and they are 
evil demonic spirits of great importance in the kingdom of darkness. I'll unpack that in a moment, but let me show you the third example of death and hell. When Jesus first encountered John on the island of Patmos, right here in the beginning of the book of Revelation, John turns to see the one who was speaking to him and the voice that spoke to him had said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He who was dead and is alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and hell. So what does he do? He tells us that Jesus went into the domain of death and stripped the authority of death and hell to imprison the righteous. And that's why when He came back out of the grave, or rather, that's why the moment Jesus died, as is recorded in Matthew, Uh, in the closing chapters of Matthew, the earth shook, it said, and the graves of the righteous dead were opened and they came back to life and they walked around the city of Jerusalem for for the 40 days prior to His ascension. And then when He ascended, the Scriptures are plain, He took captives in His train, He took them with Him him to heaven. That's why the prophetic psalm says, lift up your heads, O ye gates, as He was going into heaven. He speaks to the gates of heaven and says, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, that the King of glory might come in. That That was when the Lamb was ascending to the throne following His his uh, resurrection and leading captives in its train. Ten days later, He would release the Holy Spirit and the day of Pentecost would come and that kingdom that He received, having come back uh, uh, to His place of authority before He had a body that He came into into the earth, He was given a kingdom and that kingdom came forth in its initial stages on the day of Pentecost and of the increase of that kingdom, there's been a steady increase. Now, so when when the Lamb opened uh, the the second seal, uh, or rather when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, the, 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 the rider on the fourth horse, the pale horse, the word green or done, the pale horse, that rider was called death and hell followed after him. Jesus had already stripped death and hell of the power to imprison and to contain the righteous even as they were waiting for the accomplished work on the cross. Now, in the matter of death and hell, I want to point out that the spirit 
is called death. And the condition of separation from God is also called death, because that's the seat of the authority of the, spirit, of the spirit of death, when people have separated themselves from God and live in a condition apart from Him, therefore living in their souls, the spirits not having been, been brought to functionality by the Holy Spirit, they live in a condition described as death. So in that condition a man is dead while he is yet alive. Death then is not the physical expiration of the body, that's a condition where there's a separation of the spirit from the flesh, from the body, and in that case the death that is described is the death of the flesh. That's when the uh, silver cord, according to Ecclesiastes, is broken and the pot is dashed at the wheel, when the spirit returns to God who gave it. That person, the only aspect of that person that is dead at that time is his body, because his body is no longer viable, but the person continues in life in the spirit, purely as a spirit. So when the Bible refers to, I hold the keys of death and hell, it's talking about two spirits, not human beings, not earthly potentates, it's speaking about demonic spirits who are key to the operation of the kingdom of darkness. So the condition known as death results from the spirit by that name, and the authority of that spirit is to arrest and imprison in the domain of hell under the rule of the spirit known as hell, those who have been separated from God, that's why they work together, death and hell, and that's why Jesus took the keys of death and hell, but that's why we see them together, hence a pattern, uncontrovertibly a pattern, that's why they show up together as the riders on the pale horse. The lead is death, because the authority of death is the wages of sin, it has the authority to assign the punishment that comes from a life of sin where the person is not redeemed by the blood of Christ, they are subject to the domain, they are subject to the authority of the spirit of death who effectuates an arrest and delivers the souls of men, the bodies go into the dust of the earth in the grave, but the souls are subject to the control of the spirit of death, and He delivers them into the custody of the spirit known as hell, who rules over domain by the same name. Now what is my point? I didn't mean to to spend time talking about death and hell except to establish this one point, the rider on the fourth horse is a spirit, and the one with him is also a spirit, death and hell. What spirit am I talking about? I'm talking about one of the most powerful 
in terms of the authority to arrest and imprison of all the demonic spirits. I don't know what rank they occupied prior to their fall, but they're the last ones to be destroyed because of the power that they have in regards to the domain of darkness and sin. So when men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil, they're dead while they are alive. They are in the control of the spirit of death and on their way to being confined in the domain of hell upon their deaths. So, these four horsemen are four spirits, evil spirits of powerful rank. Because look, when they go out upon the earth, they have power to do things like kill, they have power, like this, the fourth horseman, power over fourth of the earth to kill with sword, hunger and death and by beasts of the earth. Now, because they are evil spirits, they're invisible, you see? Because they're evil spirits, they are invisible. How then are spirits and the activities of spirits ever to be detected upon the earth? Simple, by what they motivate men to do to themselves and to each other when such men are under the control of these spirits. The only way you know what a spirit is doing on the earth, whether it's the Holy Spirit or evil spirits, is by their activities through humans. So, so, what I'm telling you is this, you're not going to be able to say, oh, there is the rider on the white horse conquering and being conquered, but when you see the effects of men doing things to of mankind doing things to each other, for which there is no human explanation that shocks the conscience, that goes above and beyond anything that is normative for human beings in its wickedness and its perversion, you ought to be able uncontrovertibly, without question, to say that's the activity of an evil spirit. Now, because all five spirits, there are four horsemen, but the fourth is riding double, the fourth horse is riding double. It carries the spirits of death and hell because they will eventually perish together. Death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. So they're viewed as one because they function in the unitary fashion of oneness. Uh, As I've mentioned before, the authority to seize being given to the spirit of death and the authority to imprison being given to the authority, being given to the spirit known as hell. When we continue, 
I want to look at the rider on the red horse. 